Welcome to Hevray Connect. I'm Zach Garber, your host and a current Hevray member. In this podcast, you will get the opportunity to learn about the incredible Cabinet Young Leadership Program. We will explore the stories of fellow Cabinet members, alumni of the program, and educational series about the Jewish Federations. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends, family, and local Jewish Federation. Enjoy. Just to be I firmly believe that we all have our role to play in what's happening right now. This is, have no doubt, a moment in time for the Jewish people and in Jewish history. And what do I mean by that? As much as we all, or most of us, think that we need to be there on the ground, and whether it's grabbing a rifle or volunteering or engaging, whatever it is, I would argue that's not the role that we all have set in place for us. We each have our respective roles, as small or as big or as influential as it might be to play in our respective community, from raising money to engaging your colleagues, to informing your friends, to potentially posting on social media, to engaging in different audiences for supporting Israeli businesses, to being proudly Jewish, wearing your Jewish symbols unapologetically um, and proudly in different settings that you find yourself in, I think that is a super important role, and we don't want to diminish that. I'm very excited to have another episode of Hevray Connect. I have the honor and privilege of interviewing a now good friend of mine, uh, Shimon Levy. Shimon is currently a reserve captain in the IDF, and he has been an entrepreneur. He started multiple businesses. He's uh, out in Detroit, and we wanted to have an episode speaking with Shimon during these times in particular about his recent deployment post-October 7th and what's been going on along with what's been happening locally in terms of the rise of anti-Semitism and focus specifically on what it is that we can do to make a tangible difference with our time, our efforts, our talents, our money. And Shimon has really been putting in the time, work, effort, both abroad and back home. So Shimon, I'm so honored to have you on the podcast. I think a great starting point would be just to learn a little bit about your background. Thank you for having me, Zach. Uh, For sure. So um, 38 years old, married plus two, living in Detroit, Michigan, born in Israel, raised uh, traveling quite a bit around the world in the likes of Nepal and Australia. My parents were diplomats, came back to Israel to finish high school, joined the military, uh, spent a little over nine years in different capacities in the Navy. I was a ship commander, a squadron commander, a major projects and foreign liaison for the southern region of Israel, all the way from uh, Herzliya to Anunis in the south on the border with Egypt and, and Rafa. And then I came to the States uh, where I pursued my uh, graduate degree in public policy. And uh, one thing led to another, fast-forwarding uh, Almost a decade since I've been in the States, I've gotten into the world of investments. I'm currently the managing partner of SGL Acquisitions and LR Partners, boutique investment funds, primarily centered around real estate opportunities, but have a very large part of our majority invested in cash flowing businesses and more importantly, entrepreneurs, leading horses, who are the ones who really have a vision into transforming these 
quintessential mom and pop shops into something that is more 2023 now almost 2024 from an efficiency and tech standpoint so that's me in a nutshell and again grateful for the opportunity to be here and have this conversation so let's let's jump right in uh, october 7th happens you are reserve captain you served in the idf can you share a little bit about what happened post october 7th and your recent deployment and what you've been doing in israel yeah yeah so i uh, woke up in the middle of the night on october 7th which is also my 38th birthday um realized the breadth of what was happening very early on reached out to my family to make sure that everybody are okay uh shortly thereafter to my military commander who's now a general um and asked him if i could be of support he told me of course i could be um next thing that happened is me packing up my bags and uh, catching the first flight out on october 8th and starting a 30-hour journey across three airlines and about four or five stops uh, because flights were canceled, delayed, obviously going into Israel uh, until my position in the military itself uh, and being enlisted to serve in the war. And what was it that you were doing on the ground once you came back into Israel? How were your talents efforts used initially? Yeah, coming back to Israel, you know, I'm, I'm a combat soldier. That's what I've been used to be doing my entire military career and in reserves over the past uh, decade plus. Uh, This time around, they needed me for something very different, uh, as impactful, and it was, um, so to speak, the best of uh, both worlds, given the horrendous situation on the ground. We needed to uh, be able to equip our combat soldiers with personal protection equipment in order to launch the ground offensive and as a result of the fact that hamas isis broke the ceasefire on saturday penetrated the fence and there are thousands in the southern region um at that point in time we didn't really know what was happening on the ground so thousands and thousands of ordinary people you know driving their hyundai gets uh would get into these different armories and different deployment center because the majority of Israel public still did uh, meaningful service at the IDF and they took whatever they could in order to head down south and start engaging with the Hamas ISIS terrorists. Um, That created, coupled with a few other reasons, shortage of personal protection gear and I was basically responsible in establishing being the IDF representative of the first personal protection uh, donation command center uh, in cooperation with uh, the Israeli Defense Ministry that, to the best of my knowledge, was last established in the Six Day War in 1967. So we were basically making sure that all of our soldiers have the necessary equipment, i.e. Kevlar vests, tactical helmets, knee pads, tactical gloves, tactical uh, glasses, in order to launch the ground offensive. And once we were able to hit the numbers that we were given, that is when the ground offensive into the Gaza Strip commenced. So you you have two kids, a family, you run multiple investment businesses. Um, how long were you in Israel and what have you been doing since you've come back? So my total reserve service was about 34 days. Truth be told, I was on the ground probably around um, a little less than 30 days, I think because I was doing a lot of work when I was uh, on my way abroad and in my first couple of days back in the States, 
Uh, then they added a couple of days there. But in essence, I would spend about four to five days in the command center and then two to three days in these combat zones, engaging the units, engaging the soldiers, really understanding what they're missing and what they need in order for us to cater to it. Coming back to Michigan, you know, it was a little surreal. You're basically living in a combat zone and you're landing in beautiful Folly, Michigan. Uh, one bright, uh, I believe it was a Thursday or a Friday to two little kids and a partner uh, waiting for you. And as we know, life is stronger than anything and all things. So uh, you very quickly get back into the scheme of things because A, you've got a business which you need to kind of reinvigorate and resuscitate, so to speak, after being gone for almost five weeks. And, you know, the two little children don't know really what you've been through, what you've seen, what you've experienced. So life for them continues as if it never stopped. And that is a 5.30 a.m. wake-up call. That is being annoyed if, you know, whatever three-year-olds do, being annoyed if they haven't got the right kind of food or the right kind of toy, giving you a little bit of a hard time if they need to go to bed. So it was um, a combination of a little bit surreal, but very kind of back into the routine with very little time. So trying to reconcile my time in Israel with coming back and being a full-time, so to speak, uh, business owner, father, partner, all into one, took a few weeks to get um, accustomed to. But the most surprising thing out of this whole thing, um, being off of social media for the better part of a month, was seeing the unabashed, blatant rise in anti-Semitism on the streets and college campuses in hospitality venues and industries that was really troubling, uh, really shocking, but I would lie if I would say it was surprising. Can you share some of the specifics in terms of, we talk about how their double standards applied to Israel and what's happening right now and Gaza relative to other conflicts that have happened in the last year or two around the world? Over the past couple of weeks, we're seeing almost daily news of Israeli or hostages that were taken from Israel, not necessarily Jewish, not necessarily Israelis. There were more than 15 or 20 nationalities that were kidnapped, if my memory serves me correct. And the headlines are murdered in Hamas ISIS captivity. For me, as an officer, as a citizen of a democratic, law-abiding, moral military, it shows everything that is wrong with what we're experiencing right now. The use of the word ethnic cleansing, genocide, the IDF is killing babies intentionally or you know, the most ridiculous headlines. I saw something about the idea of stealing organs. What the hell are you talking about? And I'm a military guy. Every soul, every person is an entire world. But if you want to look from an analytical standpoint and from a war history standpoint, strictly at the numbers, and you're talking about 20,000 Gazans who have died in this war, probably over a third of them Hamas-ISIS terrorists, and 2,000 Israelis 
who have died in this war, probably about a third of them, soldiers. It is incomparable to what we've seen in the recent years from Bashar al-Assad butchering 650,000 people of his own blood in the streets of Damascus, constantly crossing the red line, so to speak. Nobody said anything. Nobody marched the streets. The Congo, Yemen, Somalia, South Sudan, China, Cambodia. I mean, I cannot even begin to try to illustrate the double standard that we're seeing here for a law-abiding, democratic, moral country who is fighting a moral and justified war with an aggressor who broke a ceasefire, walked into people's homes early on a holiday morning and butchered women, children, babies, elderly. Yeah? I mean, the double standard is second to none. And often, you know, this is where I do engage with some of the protesters. I ask them, did you protest for Syria? Did you protest for Iraq? Did you protest for Yemen? Did you protest for Afghanistan? And the answer is always no. It's about the Palestinians. And one cannot beg and wonder why. Why? In a war that was instigated by Hamas ISIS, where they brutally murdered, raped, and, and God knows what else, took over 250 hostages. The only sliver of a Jewish state in the world is under such tremendous global scrutiny. And one has to wonder why. And for me, it's very, very clear. Jew hatred, plain and simple. And the numbers speak from themselves. Listen, we've got 16 million Jews across all the political spectrum. Right, left, center, whatever. It doesn't matter. There's almost 2 billion Muslims out there. And according to whatever stats, you're seeing that anywhere between, you know, 15 to 25% of the Muslim population are being radicalized. So you're talking about like, you know, best case scenario, you have 300 million radicals and here's 16 million Jews. We can't even decide which Chinese food we're going to order on a night. So our opinions are so varied. For every two people, you've got like 10 different opinions uh, sharing them. So. Um, for me, it's just very, very plain and simple. It's the rise of this old, age-old disease of anti-Semitism. Nothing else. Nothing, nothing new, nothing else. Same old, same old. So let's talk a little bit about that. Most, most of our Hevre were not uh, in the IDF. We're not necessarily flying over to Israel uh, to serve right now. But there's a lot that can be done in the U.S. So I think it would be helpful to understand your perspective of what you're seeing from uh, Israel, given that you were there, what your perspective that you're seeing here in the U.S., and how people can try and make a difference. Yeah. So let me, let me start from the, from the top. I firmly believe that we all have our role to play in what's happening right now. This is, have no doubt, a moment in time for the Jewish people and in Jewish history. And what do I mean by that? As much as we'd all, or most of us, think that we need to be there on the ground and 
whether it's grabbing a rifle or volunteering or engaging, whatever it is, I would argue that's not the role that we all have set in place for us. We each have our respective roles, as small or as big or as influential as it might be to play in our respective community, from raising money to engaging your colleagues, to informing your friends, to potentially posting on social media, to engaging in different audiences for supporting Israeli businesses, to being proudly Jewish, wearing your Jewish symbols unapologetically um, and proudly in different settings that you find yourself in. I think that is a super important role and we don't want to diminish that. So throughout this, everybody has a role to play. I also think that it's important that we call a state a state. I've been coming across a lot of people that are trying to rationalize what's happening in the streets right now, what we're seeing. It's what we're seeing right now in the streets, on college campuses, in our backyard, is the, is the flagrant rise in anti-Semitism. And I, and I intentionally use the word rise because this is not new. This is the same old Jewish hatred that our grandparents and our great-grandparents and our uncles and our aunts and our great-in-laws have been warning us about for 3,000 years that today is manifesting itself in the way that it's manifesting itself uh, in the streets, okay? So, for example, 500 years ago, people would say, oh, the Jews drink Christian babies' bloods. Today, it's the IDF kills babies, okay? If people would say, oh, all the Jews care about is money, Today, they're basically saying, oh, well, you know, you can't argue with them. They're thieves. They stole land in 48. They stole land in 67. You know, we've reached this stage and a point in time where reality, where fact, where history and historical context bears no merit to the flagrant rise of TikTok videos and all things around it. By the way, I don't know how many people are on TikTok. I personally have not been on TikTok that much. If you go on TikTok, it is horrible to say the least. What you're seeing there is so disturbing. And for me personally, as a soldier, as the commander, as a person who proudly wears my IDF uniforms and waves my Israel flag and is unabashed about my Jewish identity, to see it, it is as if they're trying to assassinate my character. The lies could not be further from the truth. Now, are there fringes? Yeah, of course there are. In every society there are, in every military there are, there is always the fringe, the 0.05% or 1%, it doesn't matter. But there's a huge difference. As Natan Shalansky said, when you delegitimize Jews, when you demonize Jews, and when you apply double standard to Jews, that is when Jew hatred, anti-Semitism is prevalent. And that, my friend, is what we're seeing today in the streets, day in, day out. So I want to talk about solutions and actions, because you're a man of action. You said that everyone has a role to play, no matter how big or small. What are the things that you're currently doing stateside now that you're not in Israel to try and make a difference as it relates to anti-Semitism, as it relates to educating and kind of expanding the tent to getting more people to understand and empathize with the realities of what's going on on the ground? So, so, so I hear you. We are at the stage in Jewish history where we need to understand where we stand in the world. What is our role? What is our responsibility? Who we are to ourselves, to our family, most importantly, to our community and to our people. 
We cannot apologize for being Jewish. We cannot be embarrassed by the actions that others take or others attach to us for being Jewish. That is something that I am completely and wholeheartedly against. So I'm unapologetically Jewish. I'm unapologetically proud. And I have a moral clarity about what is happening on the ground, not because I read it in some textbook or saw it in some video, but because I was there and experienced it firsthand. Now, do I think people should engage with trolls on social media? Absolutely not. And there is a lot bigger forces here at play. You know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I can tell you that I walked the hall where, you know, the, the, the premise of Iranian, Chinese, Russian bots being involved in commenting and liking and sharing and using AI to, to take an image and widespread it, not to mention the dollars behind it, has been absolutely insane. Okay. But to you, I say, when we all have our part to play, it's depending on who we are. So my part to play in here is to engage with the community. So if I have a platform and I'm fortunate enough to be invited to speak to a shul, to speak to the media, to speak at a menorah lighting ceremony, to engage with an author or a uh, local gathering of a certain organization, I would do that in a heartbeat. It doesn't matter whether there are 20 people in the crowd or, you know, my biggest event was with 3,500 people. I also believe in posting my thoughts. So I'm not the number one utilizer of Facebook, but if I have thoughts, graphs, perceptions about a certain situation that I view as real, as true to what I experience, then I share my thoughts, okay? If there's an opportunity to engage a colleague and take them out for coffee, again, I'm not talking about the fringe. I'm not talking about a demonstrator who's going out there and screaming from the river to the sea, Palestine will be sea, be free of, of resistance is justified, all just synonymous to I support Hamas ISIS terrorists or Jews need to be encyclopedized from the state of Israel, um, then I, I have no reason or call to engage with that individual, but with my friends, with the people who are my colleagues, with my work environment, if I see somebody that is uh, uh, posting things or voicing opinions, I will very much reach out and offer an olive branch, so to speak. Let's grab a cup of coffee. Let's grab a, uh, a slice of pizza and have a conversation. And these conversations should never be about the facts because, again, we've reached a stage where facts are fungible, where facts are debatable, but they should be about where they find you as a person who's experiencing this right now. And again, let's call it what it is. Jews are concerned. Jews are afraid. Jews are experiencing for the first time in their lives and in a lot of different layers, um, anti-Semitism, microaggressions, overtly, covertly, they're seeing it. Students on campuses, on college campuses, student leaders are suffering horrendous intimidation and, and, and harassment. And it is important to speak in a unified voice, to empower the Jewish community as a whole, not to shy away, not to stand tall under the carpet, but rather say clearly we are united, we are together, we are proud, we are in this for the long haul, and my friends, like it or not, we are not going anywhere. We are not going anywhere. We've earned our stripes. We're here to stay. So that has been my little contribution to everything that is happening. And again, I want to share that everybody respectively, whether they grab a coffee with a colleague, whether they go out 
with a few friends, whether they share their thoughts on social, whether they write a local op-ed to the newspaper, whether they write a personalized email to 10 or 20 of their friends, just updating them about where they're at, are fully playing the role that they are uh, meant to play in this point in time in Jewish history. For someone who's looking to engage, who maybe you know, isn't part of the IDF, we have a lot of heavy that are listening, and they're talking to someone uninformed. How do you describe what's happening? And where do you kind of show the line between anti-Semitism and true curiosity about becoming informed and educating with kind of just where the world is around the the Middle East and the, the conversation around Israel? Yeah. So for me, every conversation needs to start from the lowest barrier to entry. And the lowest barrier to entry, Zach, is humanity. So you're not talking to me as Shimon, the IDF officer. You're not talking to me as Shimon as the guy who's been now at his fourth war and countless major operations. You're talking to me as Shimon, the local community member, the father, the partner, the business owner, who shares a lot of the daily struggles that we all share. That needs to be the premise for any meaningful conversation, the humanity, okay? Once you put the humanity front and center, everything else can take a backseat because they see you for who you are, for what you are, a vulnerable, identifiable human being sitting across from them, okay? That is the first part of the conversation. The second part of the conversation, there needs to be some parameters to engagement. So for example, I would never engage with a Holocaust denier. Why? It's a waste of his time and it's a waste of my time. Why would I try to cater to him? I will never engage with somebody who refutes, disputes the October 7th events, who says they didn't happen. They were orchestrated by the Israeli government. You know, you weren't there. I was there. I was walking Berry. I was walking Faraza. I was walking the Nova Peace Festival grounds seeing the kids, the families, the babies, the women that were butchered. So for me, that is my barrier to entry, acknowledging that something horrendous happened. And from that point on, we can engage. But it also provides a challenge. You're seeing the same social justice movements, which we, as the collective Jewish community, were proudly taking part of. The Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the, the love is love movement, you see them basically treating Jews like pariahs. We no longer belong there. We've been ostracized from these environments which we've fought for, marched with, advocated for DEI professionals and in different institutions. And that, my friend, feels like shit. That's not mince words. You are suddenly faced with a reality where your values are being challenged. That's what we're going through right now. We're going through an identity change. We're going through a reconciliation process to try to understand where we stand after we've been, you know, uh, treated like pariahs in these movements, which we proudly marched with and proudly engaged with and talked to the entire time. So for me, that is the most challenging part of everything that has happened over the past couple of months, seeing who your friends are, seeing who the folks who don't care for you are, and seeing how at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, 
we need to first and foremost remember that before we were Republicans, before we were Democrats, before we were conservative, before we were liberals, before we were humanities, before we were scientists, we were first and foremost Jews. And that's how we're being treated. So I'm not going to try to go out of my way to educate anybody out of the subtleties on what happened on October 7th thereafter or geopolitical trends in the Middle East. You can give me a whole month-long curriculum to share that with people. But if somebody comes to the table and has already made up their mind or is so far gone to see your humanity, I'm anchoring everything again back in humanity, and to identify real, real, real suffering, then the conversation is futile. And we'd be much better served by engaging with people that are speaking from a place of lack of knowledge or creating a false correlation between, you know, uh, uh, oh, well, the Palestinians are the underdogs. Israel must be the big bad wolf. No, that is absolutely not true. Let's talk about what led to the circumstances today. So spend your time, energy, and resource in not necessarily uh, regurgitating verbatim the facts on the ground again, going back to the fact that in 2023, apparently facts are, are debatable, but about recognizing the humanity of me having a cousin who was murdered at the Nova Peace Festival, of me having a high school best friend who was murdered at that same festival, where my friends are now recruited to the reserves, where the companies that I work with are about to go out of business because everybody from the CEO all the way to the project manager are involved in reserves and are serving in combat capacities. This is where the conversation really needs to be anchored with in the humanity of the two people engaging. Let's talk a little bit more about conversations and what people can do. I know you mentioned that you've been speaking in your community. Can you give a little bit more specifics? Because I think what's important is I, I want people to understand that you've mentioned, you know, obviously you're very connected, very close to this, very involved in this. You're an authoritative figure as it relates to what's going on in your understanding of the situation. But anyone who's in cabinet, every, who are listening to this, have a voice, have a community, have ways of outreach. So can you share some of the specific outreach that you're doing that other people can engage in? Local faith leaders, maybe work with the JCRC, AJC, about opportunities to engage in front of different audiences, maybe come to different circles where people are conducting a dialogue and share what they're feeling, uh, maybe support local college students on campuses who are experiencing the breadth of this anti-Semitism that we're talking about in the States on campuses. You know, if you ask me, they are the true heroes of this point in time in Jewish history. They are experiencing what we, the IDF soldiers, are fighting for in Israel. They are fighting the battlegrounds in the States. They are literally our first line of defense, and we should all be so very grateful for them, elevate them, support them, and tell them that the price they're paying, have no doubt the price they're paying is huge, whether it's tests, whether it's internship opportunities, whatever it is, if we can support with any way, shape, or form, uh, we will. But it's such an important point for me to make that you don't need to be an Israel expert in order to advocate. 
You're not advocating on behalf of a government. You're not advocating on behalf of the Israeli people or the Jewish people as a whole. You're advocating on yourself as an individual. You're coming to somebody and telling them, listen, I'm, I'm concerned. I'm concerned to light a menorah at my windowsill because I don't know if there's somebody who's there who might have something against Jews. And we've seen a lot of them coming out and they try to break into my house or do some damage. I'm concerned about how this will reflect in my work. I know that my supervisors, they've been publicly posting on social media where they stand. And it creates a lot of concern for me about where I stand because I don't want to share with them that I support what's happening right now in Israel. And I'm Jewish and of the Jewish faith because I'm afraid of ramifications and uh, uh, potential revenge. Um, and, and again, just having these moments of ingenuity where you're talking wholeheartedly as an individual is so much land by a landslide more important than coming with a list of 50 facts. So you don't need to be an Israel expert. You don't need to be a conflict expert. You don't need to be a history expert. You just need to care. And you need to know that you're in a place where you feel vulnerable, you feel overlooked, and you feel in a way that you might not even be able to put into words, but you've never felt that way before. And that needs to be the premise of every meaningful conversation. I want to talk a little bit more about universities. I know previously you talked to me about how you spoke at at Michigan. You've been doing things uh, also with some of your alma mater with Harvard. And everyone who's watching the news has seen what's happened with Penn, Harvard, the recent conversations happening. I want to talk about the system change that can happen at the university level, some of the things that you're trying to do and ways that people can be a part of positive change in what is a a very difficult conversation today? Yeah, yeah. So that's a great question, Zach. The lack of clarity, the lack of moral conciseness has been below any standard that I would ever expect from let alone an Ivy League institution, but from my kids' preschool that has 25 students in it, okay? The fact that they're legitimizing what we're seeing on the streets and what we're seeing in private campuses under the guise of public and free speech is despicable. Because we all know that they're utilizing these institutions and these tools, which we are so fortunate to have, it's arguably the greatest country in the world, and they're utilizing these tools against us in real time to elicit hate intimidation, riots, protest. I mean, burning flags, American flags, Israeli flags on a campus, that is insane. And for me, it's not to tackle the ideology. It's not to tackle, you can't tackle an ideology because it it just shapes shifts, okay? So it's like an octopus with a bunch of different tentacles. It's just gonna shape shift into something else. You need to tackle the action. If somebody broke, the harassment and bullying policies of a certain institution, they need to be expelled. No ifs, buts, or where's, or or whose. You broke the school's policies on harassment, bullying. You've intimidated other students. You need to be gone, okay? Now, experiencing it firsthand with the student leaders in University of Michigan when I'm privileged and fortunate to be a trustee in the Hillel there has been, um, has been, transformational for me, truth be told. 
uh, you're seeing students, okay, arguably there's three to 4,000 people at uh, U of M, a university that identifies as uh, probably around 50,000 uh, students and faculty, arguably probably three to 4,000 Jews there. And again, I haven't got any resources for that number, but you're basically seeing like 30 to 40 student leaders leading the charge and the rest of the people avoiding it. I mean, what can we expect? What, what can we expect? So, so the way to beat what we're seeing is A, in our unity, it is in our pride, and it's by outsmarting what's happening. So the vote, this completely anti-Semitic resolution calling Israel an apartheid, genocidal, ethnic cleansing, colonial state at the University of Michigan was overturned because of the fact that they broke the rules. They broke the rules of the vote. They sent an email, a mass email to all of the university. Forget about the lies that they posted at different socials and so on and so forth, funding and this, just completely detached from reality. But for us, it is our responsibility not only to come together, but also to try to bridge our own comfort bubbles. So if my comfort bubble comprise of only Jewish community members, then you're preaching to the audience. We need to move away from that and start preaching to a greater audience, talking to them, engaging them again on that human level. And this is where JFNA has a pivotal role to play. As an organization that raised, you know, north of $720 million in past 80 days, most of it in the past uh, 30, in the first 30 days of the war, uh, we can really lead institutional change, whether it's at the end of January, where we're coming together as a Kevran and all the other supporters in DC to lobby on behalf of the Jewish community and for what is happening on the ground as we're trying to eradicate Hamas ISIS terrorists from not only Palestinian lives, but obviously also Israeli lives. Uh, and, and I would say Israel has always been a microcosm to what is yet to come to the greater Western world and societies. We're just the first ones to get hit because we're in a you know, very large neighborhood. You're comparing 440 million Arabs surrounding Israel compared to 7.5 million Jews. You know, 22, 22 Arab League countries compared to one Jewish state. You know, they're spread over across 5 million square miles, whilst we're at 0.2 million square miles. So, you know, the, the ratios here are, are, are ridiculous, which is why we need to breach our bubble of comfort and kind of like engage elsewhere. And as Jeff and I support the work that we're doing on the system level, educating institutions, engaging with our other partners on the ground through the JCRC, AJC people that we do have a common ground with or a, a benchmark to a conversation. We cannot, and we are not victimized. If anybody is sitting in their home or listening to this in their car and they're saying, I'm a victim, you know, there was this thing that came out like a couple of months ago, right? would you hide me? No, no, we are proud. We are tall. We have our own sovereign Jewish state of Israel that any Jew, wherever they are around the world will always and forever be welcomed and we need to act accordingly. We need to be unapologetic in the actions and in the moral clarity that we have. Again, the fringe will always be the fringe on all sides of the aisle. Democrats, conservatives, Israeli society, okay? But we should not let that, you know, paint a broad stroke on who we are as a people or what our values and morals are 
but rather try to combat these more systematic wide uh, challenges, both from a top-down approach and a down-up approach, grassroots movements, sharing our humanity, top-down lobbying, engaging, offering educational and task force activities on the institutional levels. What gives you optimism today in terms of uh, looking at our community, looking into the future, you have young kids, um, how we're going to move forward with our heads high and make a difference against what is a rising tide of anti-Semitism, Jew hatred, and all of these issues? So three thoughts. The first one is we've all been slapped. So even if you have been dormant in your identity and your culture and your beliefs, this has woken you up. Okay, we, we unfortunately, our history has this embedded in our DNA. When they try to kill us, we come together as a community, as a people, and we are seeing that across the aisle. We're coming together. I think that is, out of this strategy, that is probably the best thing that come out of it. I think the second thing is that we understand that we have to raise Jewish warriors. We have to raise children who are proud of their identity or are confident of their faith, who can stand tall, who can walk and say unapologetically, I am Jewish and I am proud, okay? Again, making this about any governmental issue or the prime minister or whatever, this is a much bigger than that. This is us as a community coming together to say unabashedly, we're here, we're not going anywhere, and we're really ready to duke it out, okay? We're really ready to duke it out. Now, the third thing I would say is that our vocalization and the reality on the ground has also allowed us to get some actions in place, whether it's to halt donations, whether it's to take collective actions, whether it's to take collective actions, you know, as JFNA from lobbying to whatever it might be, that has enabled us to do that. So three of these things really make me um, uh, hopeful for the future. Our unity, our children, and the fact that we've actually been starting to take tangible actions um, to engage on the topic. I want to just hammer this home before we wrap up the interview. We did this podcast to hear about your service in Israel and what you're currently doing in the U.S., to hopefully inspire, promote, give ideas, and encourage others to make a difference in their community as it relates to anti-Semitism and making a difference. For any Hevre or other people who are listening to this podcast, what are your thoughts that you could share around inspiring action, making a difference today, and getting started? Because I feel like sometimes it can feel overwhelming, we can feel helpless in making a difference. Yeah, so this is what I would say. Try to go outside of your bubble. Don't preach to the people who are already bought in, captive audience. So put yourself in a place where you can talk to people outside of your bubble, A. B, recognize the humanity. You do not need to be an Israel expert in order to engage in things that just don't feel right. This is the first time in a long time that people's kishka was just moved right and left. And they couldn't really articulate why or how or where. This is why, because we're being under attacked as a community. And lastly is you have so many resources and so many supporters inside and outside the Jewish community. Do not let what we perceive 
as darkness overtake the light because there is so much light and that light is beautiful and that light is us. So whether it's calling on me, Zach, I'm going to volunteer on you, you know, whether it's calling on Zach, whether it's just having a text exchange, a WhatsApp group, whatever it is, please extend yourself beyond this self-fulfilling prophecy of kind of like how bad it is, what's happening. Let's share more articles of more people who hate us and extend beyond that. Now, I'm not talking about fluff, yeah? Like less hate, more love. No, I'm not for that. Like we need to be very pragmatic at this point in time in Jewish history and what's happening on the ground. And we need to understand our role in it very clearly. But we also need to surround ourselves by groups, by supporters, by advocates who are willing to go on this journey with us and to allow us to burst out of our shell in our own uh, way and shape and form as we're kind of going through this respectively and dealing with this uh, each in their own way. Well, I hope I hope people found this helpful, insightful, inspiring. Everyone, uh, we'll, we'll make sure when this goes out that we have Shimon's info, but it's Shimon Levy, he's on Facebook, uh, very reachable. And I would say that while you may not be an Israel expert, you have one who is in your community, you have a Jewish professional, but you can also reach out to Shimon, follow the things that he's doing, reach out to your local universities, get involved with the campuses, get involved with students. Uh, you know, in Baltimore, we have what's called the Baltimore Jewish Council, which is part of the JCRC, uh, where we're talking about policy, lobbying, ensuring that there's Holocaust education, making sure that our curriculums make sense. So there are absolutely ways to engage, get involved, and we're all inspired and thankful for Shimon, you sharing your time for the service that you provided to Israel and the service that you provide to the Jewish community in the U.S. So thank you for your time. Thank you for having me, Zach. Happy, happy uh, New Year to everybody in a couple of days. So Yeah, happy, healthy New Year with hopefully less hatred and more, more unity and more light. Amen. Amen, brother. Through the zooms and the fro-